Our text today is Psalm 144. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David from his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown, our daughters like corner pillars, cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, Thanks be to God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we're so incredibly grateful for your word, and we pray today that as we study your word that you train us up in it, that you train us for the battle ahead. And we ask that you impress these things upon our hearts and our mouths and our minds that we may carry them with us everywhere we go. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Merry Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas Eve. That was really terrible. Merry Christmas Eve. So good to see you all today. And, and it snowed, which was really wonderful. I did appreciate 50-degree days this past week, but it was wonderful to have some snow when I woke up this morning. Now, you may be asking yourself, why on earth did we just read Psalm 144 on Christmas Eve? If you remember and you've been here, we have been through this period of Advent studying a psalm each of the four weeks of Advent and looking at the themes of Advent, hope, love, joy, And this week, peace. The first week, we looked at Psalm 80. And then the second week, we looked at Psalm 85 and discussed love. And then last week, we took a look at Psalm 126 as we explored the concept of joy. So why, why on earth would we look today at a psalm that speaks about training and preparing for war if the theme of the fourth week of Advent is peace? Well, I think this is simple. War and peace go together like peanut butter and honey on sourdough. If you haven't tried it, it's actually really good. Because if there was no war, there would be no need for peace. And the reality is, family, we are in the midst of fighting a war. And in fact, you are all soldiers for Christ. And all good soldiers receive training. And it's not just a one-time event, right? It's an ongoing process. Just like the pilots in here, you continue to train. Or nurses or educators. Anything that you do requires constant training training. But I do believe there is a war to be fought. And as we know, war, unfortunately, is nothing new. We, we see the first reference to war back in Genesis 14, verses 1 and 2. 
It says, in the days of Amphorel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Elisar, Chedalomer, I can't even say this, king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adama, Shem-Eber, king of Zebulun, this is hard, and the king of Belta, that is Zoar. They don't cover it in seminary. Like the, I told you, we need to have a class. It's like just names in the Old Testament, and you can just read them over and over again. But, but the reality is, is that war and violence and hatred are nothing new. They are all a result of the fall. And the reality of that is, because of that, is sometimes war is necessary. War can be just. Scripture is full of examples of just war. And have you ever thought about the purpose of a just war? What actually makes it just? What makes a just war just is it is a fight of good against evil with an end goal of peace. It is good fighting evil with the goal of peace. Have you ever thought about that? That to get to peace requires a war. And peace is the goal of a just war. What I believe, I believe that what we are going to celebrate tomorrow was the greatest act of war that was ever declared on the world. The birth of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, was a direct declaration of war against sin and death. It was the public pronouncement and demonstration of God and His power. And it was also the promise of His everlasting grace. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, Jesus comes to crush the devil's head. He brings death to death, and it was an act of war. And I know that you all can feel it. I know that you have all have probably experienced it. But surprisingly enough today, I'm not here to discuss the culture war or any of the other wars that are going on in parts of the world or what appears to be mounting civil tension in the United States. I believe all of these are symptoms of a war that each of us must joyfully fight every day, and that is the war against hopelessness. We are in a war against hopelessness. We live in a time where there are so many people who are living hopeless lives. They're living selfish lives. When you don't have any hope, you live like every day is your last, right? FOMO. But when you live with hope, with the hope that comes from the declaration of war of Jesus' birth, you don't live for today, you actually live for a thousand generations. You live for everlasting peace. You live as the eternal live, not as the hopeless live. Because the goal of every just war is peace. And what's incredible, and we know this, is it is only Jesus Christ that can bring true peace. Because he is, as Jason read, the Prince of Peace. That's so what I'd like to discuss today is I'd like to take a journey of what it looks like to train our hands for the war against hopelessness. And my hope, my hope is that this will lead you all to look at Christmas with new eyes. We've been discussing since we read James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, how we look at our faith and how we, we look at our, our practice through new eyes. I want you to be able to feel the gravitas of the work that you are called to do in fighting the hopelessness of the world. And I want you to think about the training that you must commit to for your whole life, because I want you to live as eternal members of God's kingdom. We will feast and we will celebrate tomorrow because, as it says in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What's incredible about this is family is there is never a reason for us to lose hope, ever. I can't say that enough. There is never a reason for us to lose hope, ever. We are hopeful people because we are peaceful people, because the goal of every just war is peace. And Jesus Christ is the only way for our world to experience true peace. Family, I think you already know this. Our world does not need any more politicians or laws, certainly not any more lawyers. What our world needs is more babies and more Christians. (laughs) You see, it needs more Christians because we need, we are called to take the gospel to every corner of the globe. Now, I don't want you to mistake the right of defense, which you all have, with the warfare that we are engaged in. What we are here to think about today is this problem of hopelessness, which is what Satan wants the world to be in. Satan wants the world to be hopeless. He wants the world to believe that that this is the happy holiday season. You know we're not a happy holidays church here. We're a merry Christmas church. He wants people to reduce Christmas to a hallmark holiday, to just presents and yeehaw, and to strip Jesus Christ out of it. Because Christ is the declaration of war against Satan. What Satan wants you to do is be stressed out and get wrapped up in all the wrong things. He wants you to separate the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ from the season. Instead of feasting on the most important thing, which is the declaration of war against death and sin. You see, this war is a war that ends with peace on earth and goodwill to all men. It is a war that ends in everlasting peace. So, if Christmas is a declaration of war against hopelessness, then we must be trained to fight against hopelessness. But the reality is, family, this is an unconventional war, which means we need unconventional weapons and we need unconventional tactics. And you see, like our faith, there are so many paradoxes. And so our training is paradoxical in nature as well. You see, to gain strength, we must first become meek. To build and gain ground, we have to accept that it isn't us who's doing the work. It isn't our hard work. It isn't our desire. It is His will working in us to accomplish these things. But we must train to fight evil and sin. Like I said earlier, sometimes, rarely, this does require physical defenses. And all prudent men are properly prepared. But that is not the mainstay set of our weapons and our preparation. Because that is not the mainstay of our war. Look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Do you hear this? A belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which come from what? The gospel of peace. Ours is a paradoxical war because our goal is peace, but to obtain peace, we fight with peace. How many wars have you seen people fight with peace? You see, this is why we must acknowledge that our training for this warfare has to come from God and His Word, not the inclination of our own hearts, not the inclination of our own feelings. It comes solely from the Word of God. Psalm 144, 1 and 2, again, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. God is our steadfast love. He's our fortress. We talked about that concept of steadfastness recently, that, that it's kind of hard sometimes for our human brains to, to hold on to these concepts of, of everlasting and forever and steadfastness. God's love doesn't go away. God's love isn't fickle like human emotions. It's steadfast. That's what makes him our fortress and what makes him our stronghold, right? What are strongholds for? They're built so they don't collapse. It's the whole purpose of a stronghold is they're built so that they don't collapse. And it is in him, our stronghold, our fortress, that we take refuge. But he trains us. He trains us through his word. And in his word, we see the greatest commandment. It says in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets rest on this. Love. Peace. And here is what is so incredible about all of this and why it matters so much. It's Christmas. You have to remember that the Israelites had been in this dark period. It probably felt like a hopeless period. The generations had passed. Generations had passed since prophets had spoken. And you all know this, that time and distance can make the heart wander. That gap, that separation can lead to feelings like hopelessness. And it was here in this little town of Nazareth, what good comes from Nazareth? That a virgin becomes pregnant. And her husband does what any respectable man would be drawn to do. He wants to divorce her because he knows it's not his. But he commits to doing it quietly because he doesn't want to shame her. But then the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him that the child is God's. And he's to be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel. God with us. 
You see, that child, that flesh and blood, born into a barn to a young, unsuspecting couple, declares war on the world by bringing the peace of God to the world. Through a baby. That's why you shouldn't be surprised that Satan has a war on babies. You see, the reality of this is, Jesus is the greatest hope that the world has ever experienced. Because Jesus is the only path of peace for a world riddled with sin and death. He trains his army as the rainbow warbow of peace. That's a James Jordan phrase, and I love it. The rainbow warbow of peace. And he does that by sending his people, you, out into the world to do his work. But the question you should be asking yourself is, well, why Jesus? Why couldn't it have just been? There are so many people with so many great ideas. Self-help sections of bookstores are overflowing with all kinds of great ideas that don't ever last. Like, why couldn't we just have some guy with a great cultural change program? Seven steps to a more peaceful world. Twelve quick ideas to prevent war in Ukraine. Or something like that. Like, why, why can't we just follow that? We see crap like that slung all over the place, right? Three quick fixes to make everything better. Why? Why does that not work? Well, we look again at Isaiah's words, 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, this, this child, Jesus, the Son of God, God with us, Emmanuel, is over the government. He's over the world. He, he is the best counselor in the world. If you're looking for a good therapist, I would super recommend Jesus. He is the most wonderful counselor you could ever encounter. He is mighty God. He is the everlasting father. It means he never goes away. And he is the prince of peace. And what will he do? He will do something that nobody else has ever claimed to do and nobody else is ever able to do. His government and peace, there will be no end. There is no end to the peace of Jesus Christ. It will only expand and he will uphold it. It means he is active in it every day with justice and righteousness forever. We have a world begging for justice and righteousness, and they're looking in all the wrong places. It's creating more division and hatred when Jesus is the seat of justice and truth and righteousness and love and peace forever. That idea of forever can be such a hard concept for our minds to grasp, but it really does mean forever. And it is the zeal, I love that word, the zeal of God that does this. That is Jesus Christ. That is the baby that was born. A son to us is given. And he is at the right hand of God the Father. Which means he has all authority over all of the world. There is no square inch of this universe that is not Jesus Christ's. Which means we're hopeful because he tells us that his government will bring peace to the entire world. I've asked this as we've worked through Matthew. Do you believe in the promises of God? This is an important promise of God to believe in. Because this is where the seat of our hope is rooted in, that it is getting better. Because only Jesus can solve the problem of sin and evil and death. Self-help may have a few good ideas you can strip out of it. I liked the book Atomic Habits. I learned some things from it. 
but self-help and really quick whiz-bang programs are not the king of kings. They, do, they lack the authority. Jesus has the authority because he is king over everything. So shouldn't we be listening to him? John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. We're not legalists. You know that. You're saved by faith. But God has given you a training manual for life. He has told you how to walk the path of righteousness. He has given you boundaries. It's like the, the boundary up there, right? For the mezzanine section. So nobody falls out of the mezzanine section. Boundaries exist out of love. And God has provided you this training manual for life. He has given you regular and repeatable training intervals for the unconventional war that you are fighting to bring peace on earth fighting against hopelessness and the vanity of the world, forgiving one another as he forgave you. And why? Because he told you to do it. Because he is the king of kings. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Jesus came, to the, came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's interesting, most people know the Great Commission, we're supposed to go out and spread the gospel, but they miss, they miss the words in here, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to Jesus Christ. Go teach people to observe all that he has commanded, not just the parts you like. Was it, was it Jefferson or was it, who's the guy that Franklin cut out all the pieces of the Bible he didn't like and then made his own Bible? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. All authority, all nations, teaching them, read that as training, to observe all that God has commanded. This is discipleship, family. And this is because God is with us always. And we know this. We know this because he came as flesh and blood. An act of war against Satan and evil. And what this really means, what this really looks like, is that we are called to live lives of all of Christ for all of life, that our faith must be our rule and our guide. It is what connects us to our rock, to our foundation, to our fortress, to our stronghold. And it is scripture, it is scripture that prepares our hands for battle. And the reality is, like most training programs, it's not easy, right? I think that's why we, people can be drawn to the, the mega churchy kind of laser rock show or heretical churches like Jolith Osteenieth. They can be drawn to these things because it ends up being this kind of lukewarm, doesn't really ask anything of you. You just show up as a participant because that's all the people really are is our participants. And so there's, there's, there's nothing that's required. And you feel really good for a few minutes until you get back in the car and argue with your family. But you see, all of Christ for all of life is different. It means that every aspect of your existence acknowledges the rule and the authority of Jesus. It connects you to the body of Christ. Right? We are one body with many members. Brothers and sisters all serving the same king of kings, bringing unique gifts, uh, unique skills, unique personalities. It's the greatest diversity that's ever been created in the history of ever is the diversity that exists within the image bearers of God. And we come together, we come together to serve the king of kings, the prince of peace. And that's where our hope is found, even in the most extreme difficulties. We've had in our short run as a church so far some pretty serious difficulties. We've had death. We've had health failings. 
We've had people in financial struggles. And we care for each other and we love each other because we're connected as brothers and sisters. Matthew recommended a book to me. It's called The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. I can't believe I hadn't read this before and I would highly encourage all of you to pick up a copy. It's about a poor Dutch watchmaker and family who were living all of Christ for all of life. And during the Nazi invasion of Holland, during World War II, Corey Ten Boom and her family ran a network of underground hiding places for Jews and for other people that the Nazis were seeking out to kill. And they expanded this huge network. They had to steal ration books. So you had to be able to feed the people and all the foods being rationed. They, there was an architect that came and would build false walls, but he built them out of a brick because wood's hollow. And so they had elaborate ways to bring you know, 30 inches out from a wall so you could hide 10 people on a mattress in a small room. They ran emergency drills because you'd have these people, you know, they don't want to live in the, the tiny little hiding place all the time. So if the Gestapo or the SS knocks on the door, there'd be a buzzer, and they had 70 seconds to get everything cleaned up and hiding in the room. And one story in the book involved Corey and her family having this meal with 12 people. They have a picture. There's 12 folks at this table. Most of them were Jews that they were hiding, and the Gestapo shows up. And so they, they stall a little bit, and she presses the button. And by the time Corey and the Gestapo get back upstairs to where the dining area is, there were only three place settings set from 12. Everything was cleaned up. And, and, and down to the ashes from a cigar in an ashtray that would make it look like there were more people living in these homes. And the Gestapo gets upstairs, and it's Corey's father and Corey's sister at her empty place setting from where she had vacated to go downstairs. And they search, and they find nothing. Nothing looked out of place. And she tells this story and the story of caring and hiding for image bearers of God. And, and as she tells the story, it always comes back to a duty to love God's people. There's a really distressing part of the story where a pastor ends up in the house, and they ask this pastor, maybe they end up at the church, I don't remember, but they ask him if he would hide Jews, and he goes, me put my life on the line for them? No. It's heartbreaking. But you can understand, if you're honest, you can understand the sinful pull for that. But that is not what the all of Christ for all of life life looks like, right? The all of Christ for all of life, life looks like an acknowledgement of gratitude to Jesus for whatever situation you were in. And the Ten Boom family did this because they acknowledged that it was God, not them, who was in control. She was a woman who wanted to be married, but God had kept her single. She acknowledged that she wanted a husband, but she was content with where she was at because she saw God's hand in every single thing. She says, every experience God gives us, every person he puts in our lives is the perfect preparation for a future that only he can see. That is faith. Is the acknowledgement that every single thing that happens to us in our life is drawing us towards a future that only God can see. It's like Abraham being sent to the land to which God will show him. And her path landed her in a German prison and eventually a concentration camp where her sister died. It was only a future that God could see and only a future that God could use for His glory. And even in the difficult times, she came back to this place of contentment because she was living in preparation for a future that only God could see. Corey's faith acknowledged that God used the good and the bad for all of His will and all of His glory, especially after, after World War II. You see, this concept is critical to, to separating from and fighting hopelessness 
mean, think about the concentration camps. I, I don't even think we can get our brains wrapped around how horrific that was. Even if, if many of us I know have had an opportunity to visit these, these places of death and these places of horror, but, but conceptually it's hard to imagine, right? Train cars and death and murder and, and labor. Being a prisoner brings one face to face with the, the reality that they're not really in control of their lives especially in the center of evil in a place where people are being executed and murdered. So how does one stay hopeful in the midst of death and horror? Well, with a prayer like Corey prayed. She said, Lord Jesus, I offer myself for your people in any way, any place, any time. She acknowledges in her prayer that it's actually not about her that it's about serving him and his people wherever he needed her. She acknowledges that she's not in charge, but it was the king of the universe. She says, dear Jesus, I whispered as the door slammed and her footsteps died away, how foolish of me to have called for human help when you are here. She realized that at the end of the day, it's only the help of the hand of God that can really help any of us. That's the pathway to becoming strong is first by becoming meek because we have a mighty counselor. Why do we turn to man so often when it is only God that can save us and God that can help us because God is the only one that is really in charge? You see, Corey's training, be raised up in the admonition and love of the Lord by her family in Scripture, reading the Bible, going to church, worshiping the Lord, keeping His words on her tongue, Train her hands for war. And the warfare was taking the gospel to the Jews that they hid, to the prison guards, to the prisoners, to the Nazis. It allowed her to care for people while she was in prison and in the camps. It allowed her to care for people before she was in those and after as well. She was heavily influenced by the faith of her also spinster sister who died in the camp. Her sister's faith was a faith in action. One that understood that her job was to love and to spread peace, the truth of Christ, and then just leave the rest up to God. And it was in the midst of the horror of the camps that these two women were reading a Bible that they had smuggled in aloud, and they were teaching the love of Jesus. They were living out their faith to people that could only see horror and death. They were literally fighting a war against sin and evil by promoting peace while being persecuted by sin and evil. They acknowledge that there are no ifs in God's kingdom and that his timing is always perfect. Like my friend Thad says, you are exactly where you're supposed to be because God's will is always perfect. So family, there is a war to be fought. There's more division and more hatred in front of our faces than I remember in my lifetime. But none of that is a reason to be hopeless because we're the forward-looking people. The kingdom of God is expanding. It's easy to get wrapped up in the negativity, I think, because we live in kind of, Aaron Wren calls it the negative world, is the way people look at Christians now within the kind of the greater American context, but that's not the way it is in everywhere in the world. You should look to Africa and, and, and the incredible growth of Christ in Africa. The kingdom of God is expanding because there will be no end to the kingdom of peace. I need you to really take that away as, as you leave here today, that there will be no end to the kingdom of peace. 
Because God knows the future. It is only he who can see it. And everything serves his good will and his good glory. That's why even if you feel heavy burdened, remember that there are no ifs in God's kingdom, that everything serves his good will. I mean, what do you think Mary and Joseph were thinking in that barn the night that Christ was born? Do you think they had any idea what the path ahead of them looked like? No. They were doing what every set of young parents does. They were in the moment. They were looking at their son. They were looking forward to raising him. They were doing the things that people have to do because we live in the moment in this space right now. Their son, God's son, with whom all authority in heaven on earth rests. That was the baby that they were caring for. That baby in flesh and blood, Emmanuel, is who we will celebrate tomorrow. And the celebration is this reminder that God is with us. I think sometimes it can sound like hokey. People are like, Jesus is with you. But it's true. Jesus is really and truly with you. He's our hope. He's our strength. He's our rock. We know him. We, we actually know him. And we're so fortunate now because we have the end of the story. But think about the Israelites. They believed in him, but they were yearning for him. They were yearning for the coming of the Messiah, the Savior. The Psalms, all throughout the Psalms, there's begging and pleading for the salvation and the peace that can only come from God. But we, we know him. We know him in the flesh. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word has been with us and is with us. And so that's why we feast and we celebrate. We feast and celebrate because Christ is victory over Satan. He is victory over death. He is what makes us eternal people. That's why we are to live as eternal people forever. The head of the devil is crushed. You don't have to worry about it. You can't lose this war. There may be some battles that are really tough. And those battles, Satan may want to try to draw you to places of hopelessness. But you can't lose the war. The Prince of Peace has won the war. That's why we are called to live as eternal people and to go out and build God's kingdom and to feast like eternal people, victorious people. How do victors celebrate? They celebrate, right? If you win the big sports thing, you guys know how much I like sports. If you win the big sports thing, there's probably a big celebration. We have a big feast because we are victorious. Jared said, I don't know when you said this, a month or two ago, you said that every outpost in church are like Christmas for you every weekend. That's what they should be. Because we are feasting people because we are joyful people. And we are joyful people because we are hopeful people. And one of the things I love about Christmas is beauty. And Christmas is a time to remind us that as people who have dominion over God's creation, that one of the ways that we fight evil, because evil is always ugly, is to beautify things. It's to make music beautiful, to make art beautiful, to make literature beautiful, to make beer beautiful. It's good. We beautify God's world. We take those cheat codes that he left for us in the world and we make magical, wonderful things like blackened filet mignon with a blue cheese sauce and french fries fried in peanut oil. It's so good. That's why I'm a fat kid. 
We do all of this because we live in faith, because we are people who are trained, because we are people who are prepared, because we are people who have already won. Look at the end of our Psalm 144, 12 through 15. May our sons and their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Family, we are blessed people, the people of God, the people to whom a son is given. Do you hear the hope in this? And see, we are called to fight with weapons of hope, love, joy, and peace. Look at the Apostle Paul, Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We are to be the example of the rainbow war bow of peace. We are to be people who emulate Jesus Christ because He, God with us, has trained us for war. The most unconventional war ever with the most unconventional tactics ever. But it is a war that destroys hopelessness and increases peace, marching towards the kingdom of everlasting peace. Shout on, pray on, we're gaining ground. So I, I pray for all of you that this Christmas is one of feasting and it's joy, because to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We should be, as we raise a glass in feasting, being thankful to God for sending us Jesus Christ, to whom all the glory and honor is due, to whom whose kingdom will never, ever end. We raise a glass in praise to our victorious God because peace will prevail. I'd like to close with a poem titled Christmas Bells. It became a song later. It's by Henry Longfellow. It says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as, it was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the houses born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful that you are here to bring peace on earth and goodwill to men, everlasting peace. And so, Lord, we pray that we are the people that go out into this world 
with love and hope and joy and peace, discipling all the nations, building your kingdom for a thousand generations, the one of everlasting peace. Thank you, Lord, for sending us Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from our sin. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to live not as people in the moment, but people who are eternal. We pray that we, we live not for ourselves, but for you and for all of Christ, for all of life. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.